0: Time is always precious, and I always feel like we don't have enough of it, but I want to mention just a few things. The first is to say thank you to Pastor John for preaching last week. It was a gift to my soul and to my family. We were able to enjoy Christmas together more easily because John was carrying the burden of the week's preaching, but it was just a blessing. If you have not listened to Pastor John's sermon from last week, new assignment, go listen to it. It was a blessing. I was blessed. And it's such a wonderful thing to be in a body of believers where we can teach each other and learn from each other from the word of God. It's such a great blessing. Another thing is in the course of this sermon today, I'm, I'm drawing a little bit of material from this book here, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. If you've never read The Prodigal God and you would like this book, this is free. Come find me. I will give it to you. I've got another one in the office too, and if you, if you haven't read it, it's a good book to read. If you're looking for a book to read this week, read The Prodigal God, It'd be a good book. And with that, we're looking at the Gospel of John. So if you're coming and joining us today, we're looking at John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it and follow along with me. The main theme of this sermon, if you get nothing else, get this. It's actually two themes. <laughs> the, the main one that you'll see across the top of your handout is Jesus came to save all who believe. Jesus came to save all who believe. The other way of putting this theme is God loves us in Jesus. God loves us in Jesus. To set up this sequence of verses, because these verses probably, if you've been in the church ever in your life, you've probably heard these verses, right? Or at least the first of them. And we've seen it plastered all over the place, right? John 3.16 has gotten co-opted by just about everybody to kind of mean the most distilled or essential version of something. That's the John 3.16 of it. And it certainly is a wonderful passage. I think we have some hard work ahead of us. And so to start off our hard work, I want us to actually remember a different story. And it's a story that we're gonna use periodically to illustrate different points in this message. So set your mind to remember the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son, or sometimes called the lost son. Remember Jesus tells the story, he says, once upon a time there was a father and he had two sons, and the younger came to his father, and he said, Father, give me my share of the estate now. The father gives it to him, goes into a far country, and there he spent everything that his father gave him, right, on riotous living, it says in the KJV. But then there came to be a famine in the land, and he came to be in want. He was in so much want, in fact, that he goes and he has to feed the pigs. And it's while he's in the process of feeding the pigs that that wonderful sentence comes up. Jesus says he he came to his senses. He remembered his father. He said, do not the servants of my father have more than they need? I will go home and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. So he goes home, and while he is on the way, the father sees him, he runs out to him, and he seizes him with his arms. The boy barely gets the first part of his speech. out: Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And he shuts him up, as it were. Servants, go, fetch my robe, fetch my sandals, fetch a ring, kill the fatted calf. This boy, my son, who was lost, he's now found. But that's not the end of the story, right? In fact, the story isn't really actually told to the prodigal. It's not even really about the prodigal. It's told to the Pharisees, if you remember. It's a series of stories about lost things, and they're told to the Pharisees. And so then Jesus adds about the other boy, right? He says, the father went out because the older boy was working in the fields, as he always did. He went to him and he said, son, your brother has come home. Come into the feast. And the older boy does not respond the way we expect, right? He looks at his father and he says, I stayed here. I did everything that you ever asked me to do. And you didn't even give me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And this boy, this son of yours comes home who spent your money on prostitutes and you kill the fatted calf for him. And the father says to him, son, everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate this boy, this brother, he was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. Come in and celebrate. And we're left with that story hanging, right? There's several things I want us to think about in that story that are going to help us as we navigate this passage, because this passage deals with the difficult doctrine of the love of God, to steal a title from D.A. Carson. The first thing that I want you to notice is that love is dynamic. dynamic in that story. The boy who returns home, returns home because he remembers the goodness of his father. His father's love is ultimately what motivates him to go home, right? He decides to go home because his father is good. And love is ultimately what prevents the elder son from going in. He loves his own reputation and righteousness too much to celebrate his brother's return. And that leads us to the other thing you wanna notice is that love, even though it is universally present, is not universally effective. In the story, does the father love both his sons? Yes, the father loves both his sons. On which son is the father's love effective? The one who comes home. So with that, let's look at the passage. Verse 16 is a very difficult verse. Translators decline from changing familiar translations of famous passages. Like you'll see Psalm 23, it never gets changed across all of the different translations, or only marginally. The Lord's Prayer doesn't get changed. John 3, 16 doesn't get changed. The KJV rendered it, for God so loved the world that. Now, when the KJV was written, the expression, for God so loved the world, would have been understood to mean this. God loved the world in this way. Now, if you have a Christian Holman Bible, you know, or one of those Bibles, that's the only one that I could find that renders this passage that way. That is the best way to render it. Read it, this is the way in which God loved his rebellious creation. God loved the world in this way, for God so loved the world. He did it just so. He did it this way. He gave his one and only son that all who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. The point of verse 16 that we need to notice is that it does not emphasize the degree of God's love, even though that is almost universally how I have heard it used. We almost always are saying, for God so loved the world. His love is so vast that he did this thing. When the point of this verse is God did this thing. It is not actually the vastness, though his love is in fact vast, that is the point. It's how God's love is expressed and who God loves. So verse 17, then we see what that is. is God's mission in Jesus through his life and cross, was not to introduce new judgment, but rather to supply a necessary redemption. God's mission in Jesus through his life and cross was not to introduce a new judgment, but to supply a necessary redemption. You'll notice in the passage that those who are under the judgment of God are already under the judgment of God. Jesus does not need to add anything to the wrath of God on sin but something does need to be added. Jesus needs to supply redemption from God's wrath. Verse 18, then we see that only those who believe in Jesus escape God's wrath. Only those who believe in Jesus escape God's wrath. Anyone who does not flee to Jesus for life is already under the wrath of God. In verses 19 through 20, we see that rejecting Jesus is ultimately a result of loving darkness and sin and hating the life and truth of God. At the heart of this passage is a reaction based on what you love. If you love darkness, if you love sin, you will reject Christ. And then verses Verse 21 gives us parallels to verse 16. So, verse 16 and verse 21 are, in some senses, restatements of each other, but they're good parallels. Those who do what is true and come to the light do so because they have been born again. Remember, our context for this passage is John 3 1 through 15, the new birth. So, Those who do what is true and come to the light do so because, one, they have been born again, and as a consequence, they see God's work and they enter into it. They and their works are considered to be in Christ. They love God's glory. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so I'm going to navigate us through this text using a series of questions. I think it's good to come to texts, particularly texts that you think you know and are familiar with, by asking questions. Often questions will give us sweet treasure in God's Word. So the first question that we're going to ask today is, why does God love the world? Again, throughout this whole sermon, I can imagine that some of us might get the impression that I might be saying that God does not love the world. I am not saying that. That God loves the world is not in question. That God loves is not in question. The question is, why, who, how? Those are the questions that we're going to ask. So, the first one is, why does God love the world? And the critical answer that we must supply is that God does not love the world for its own sake. Meaning God does not look at the world and see something in it that is so utterly valuable, so winsome, so precious, so delightful, that he simply must do something to rescue it. And that is often the way that John 3.16 is portrayed. God so loved the world, you know, the world was so precious to him, he couldn't risk losing it. But Scripture's testimony is that God does not love the world for its own sake. Instead, God loves the world for three reasons. The first of which is God loves the world because of who He is. God loves the world because of who He is. The second reason is because of His purpose, as we see here. And there are three purposes under number two. So, He loves because of who he is and because of his purpose. What's his purpose? Well, we can see here, the first purpose is to deliver his church from wrath. Quote, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the first reason that God, his purpose towards towards us in his love is to deliver his church from wrath. The second is to make salvation possible. Quote, in order that the world might be saved. And the third is to display his glory. And this I'm getting from the very end, that those who are redeemed, they walk in the light. In verse 21, whoever does these things, they do it so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So God loves the world because of who God is. God loves the world because of his purposes, namely to deliver his church from wrath to make salvation possible and to display His glory to the very end of the earth. Again, that God loves the world is not in question. Rather, before whom is it displayed? In other words, who gets to see God loving? And the answer is everyone. Everyone gets to see God loving. Why? Because God's expression of love is most keenly manifested in Jesus Christ dying on a cross for sinners. The love of God is revealed to everyone in that sense. So before whom is it displayed? Everyone. On whom is it effective though? And the answer is some, right? It's displayed before all, but the love of God is effective on some. Literally here, those who believe, what Christians call the church. And to what end? To display his glory. That's why God does it. So why does God love the world? For his own sake and for his own purpose. To deliver his church, to provide a way out of death and and wrath, and to display his glory. Now we ask, why did God send his son? The next major point is, why did God send his son? And the answer is to save all those who believe in him. To save all those who believe in him. This passage shows us who how and to what purpose God displays and works his love. This passage shows us who, how, and to what purpose. Who? Jesus came to save all who believe. God did not send his son in order to save the world, but rather, he says, that through him the world might be saved. These are critical Words. Words matter so much, and they're so beautiful. God did not send his son in order to save the world as a totality, but rather that through him the world might be saved. What do I mean by that? That means that apart from Jesus, no one can be saved, right? means if God had not sent his son, there is no possibility of salvation. Friend, if you're here today and you've been taught by this world that there is some other way to be made right with God other than Jesus, the Bible says you're wrong. It is a damnable lie from hell. It is the worst deceit that a man can fall under to imagine that there is some other way to be made right with God than through Jesus. No, God sent his son, Jesus, into the world that through him, you might be saved and only through him can you be saved Jesus alone provides the necessary life and sacrifice if anyone is to be saved friend if you have right standing with God you got it one way through Jesus Christ so note then here that not all the world will be saved That is the straightforward reading of John 3.16. Not all the world will be saved. This is not a universalist text. Instead, God calls some out of the world. He makes a distinction in verse 17 between the ones believing in him and verse 16 versus the ones not believing in him. In verse 21, the ones who do what is true and come to the light versus in 19 through 20, the ones who love darkness, hate the light, and do not come to the light. There is a clear distinction. There are two kinds of people. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ splits into two categories, the whole of the world. Those who come to the light, who do what is true, and those who hate the light, they love darkness. So who then will be saved? Note I'm not asking who could potentially be saved, I am asking who in fact will be saved. Another way of framing the question is to say, on whom or for whom is Jesus' work effective? And the answer is only but all who believe in Jesus. Only but all who believe in Jesus. And that's what, the, what Christians call the invisible church, meaning all those but only those who have believed Jesus. You, friend, if we look around at each other this morning, I am blessed to serve in a congregation that I trust has a disproportionate majority of people who are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, know themselves to be saved, trust in him alone for his salvation. But friend, in a gathering this large, certainly there is at least one of us who imagines themselves to be in the church of God but he is not. That's the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Right now, what you see here, this is the visible church. You look around, you like, we see it. This is the church. The invisible church are all those who are truly Christ's, regardless of time, space, or place. Jesus came to save the invisible church in that sense. It's a long way of saying that if you just come to church, if you fill an office of the church, if you do things that are church-like, if you have attitudes and deportments and behaviors that are church-like, that does not make you a Christian. That does not bring you into Christ. The saving benefits of Christ's sacrifice are not necessarily applied to you unless you know and trust him in faith, unless you have been, as chapter 3, 1 through 15 said, born again. So, again, for whom did Christ come to die? Jesus came to save all who believe his true church. How does he do it? Jesus saves them by his life and his death through regeneration, leading to repentance and faith. Jesus saves them by his life and death through regeneration and leading to repentance and faith this passage assumes You remember back when we first started john i said john assumes a lot of information this passage assumes that everyone without distinction is in sin and under god's wrath remember how the passage says that if you don't believe in christ you are already condemned it's assuming that the posture of every single person when they start their life is under the wrath of god in sin everyone says the bible with distinction is in sin and under God's wrath. Romans 3.23 says, for we have all sinned, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice in that passage, nor here is either Paul or John saying that everyone is justified and redeemed. Instead, he is saying that everyone who is justified and redeemed is so only and always by Jesus as a result of God's grace. Did you catch that? Not everyone is justified and redeemed, but those that are justified, those that are redeemed, are only and always so through Jesus. Thus, we say salvation is for everyone without distinction but not exception salvation is for everyone without distinction meaning whether you are rich or poor or white or black or american or chinese whatever you are salvation is for you without distinction but it is not for you without exception meaning not everyone that is or happens to be any of those categories will be, or is saved. No one is disqualified on the basis of their race, their intelligence, their background, their wealth, but it does not mean that everyone is consequently saved. There's two parts of how Jesus saves us. he The substance and then how he applies it to us, or the medicine and the remedy. There's this old illustration that's used by the Puritans of uh, that God sets his medicine a cordial on a table and you're sitting at the table the substance of the gospel is what's in that bottle but until you drink it it does you no good if you were, if you're dying of poison and the antidote is on the table you can't just look at the antidote and say I agree that's the antidote you must drink it it must go down your throat so the substance medicine that's on the table is that Jesus saves those who believe by exchanging his righteous life for their sinful life we believe as Christians that when Jesus went to the cross that God imputed to Jesus our sins and that when we trust in Jesus God imputes to us his righteous life in other words we exchange My sinful life becomes Jesus' life, and Jesus' righteous life becomes mine. That's the substance of the gospel. Now, how does it get applied to us? How do we drink the medicine, as it were? Jesus grants his salvation through the mysterious and sovereign work of his Holy Spirit. We saw that in John 3, 1 through 15. That's what he was talking to about Nicodemus, right? Right? So you must be born again. How are you going to look upon the Son of Man savingly unless you're born again? Jesus grants his salvation through the mysterious and sovereign work of his Holy Spirit, the blowing of the wind that we we don't know where it's coming from, we don't know where it's going, but so it is with everyone who's been born of the Spirit. We can tell the effect on them. And what are those effects? It creates a new heart and that new heart testifies to its existence, it gives witness to its existence by repenting, believing, and faithfully obeying God. When Jesus gives new life to your heart, your heart explodes with a testimony. It explodes in repentance. It says, I don't wanna live the way I used to live. It explodes in faith. It says, I trust you, Jesus, you are enough for me. And it seeks to do what Christ commands. Thus salvation, my friend, must be more than accomplished, it must be applied. The fact that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago will do you no good unless you drink its remedy. Is his cross enough for you? Yes. Was his work sufficient? Yes. Was his life valuable and precious in the sight of God? Yes. Will it do you any good Apart from faith, no. So how? Jesus saves us by his life and death through regeneration leading to repentance and faith. Why? Why does he do this? Jesus saves us to love and display God's glorious grace. Why did Jesus go to the cross? to display God's grace. Verses 16 and 21 bookend this portion of the passage. They're like two brackets that sit on it. Those who walk in the truth and come to the light do so because they want to show their works were carried out in God. In other words, Jesus' life and sacrifice replicates itself in his followers. Jesus did what he did to bring glory to God and to display God to others and that replicates itself in his followers. His followers, when they become born again, they live their lives the same way. He lived his life entirely based on what the Lord said. He did what the Lord wanted him to do. He sought the Lord's will. All of a sudden, that's what starts happening in the follower. The follower's life bears resemblance to Christ not just outwardly, but inwardly. This is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. No, I worked harder than any of them. He's comparing himself to the other apostles. He says, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. You see there, Paul acknowledges that this new birth is the cause of, of his wondrous new obedience. His immense labor of love for the church comes from Jesus' cross. He sees Jesus' grace as animating his own life. Friend, this is, this is consummate with, uh, this is a commensurate with all of God's activity throughout all of scripture it is good for us to know that God always acts in service of the praise of his glory. That is God's chief aim in everything that he does. Again, in this passage, that God loves the world is not in question, but the full scope and the goal of divine love is not in full view here. 1 John 4, 7 through 12, among other things, amplifies and it focuses God's love on the church. See, John writes to the church, he writes to believers, and he says, in in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Underneath God's love for his church lies the bedrock of God's eternal and ceaseless love and delight in himself and his work to display himself for the joy of his creatures. God saved you not just to rescue you from his wrath. He did. He saved you to rescue you from his wrath. He saved you to see and savor his glory forever because his glory and he himself is the most valuable thing that exists. God himself does everything for the sake of his own glory because his glory is what you were made for. God works salvation, yes, because in one way he loves the world, even the world in rebellion against him. And yes, because in another, deeper, more profound way, he loves his church specifically. And he loves his church and the world because of his ultimate delight in himself and his eternal goodness and glory. Now friends, at this point, this might be a new teaching to you and at risk of spending too much time on one spot, I'm gonna run you through a series of passages to try and help you see what for me was a revolutionizing concept. That God does everything for the sake of his own glory. These are just a sampling of verses from Scripture, and I'm going to run you through them. Friend, why does God act? He acts for his own sake. In Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23 says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. What's the answer to why does God bring Israel out of exile and back into Jerusalem? For the sake of his great name. To vindicate his great name so that the nations will believe that God is a great God. Why did God predestine us in love to be his sons? Ephesians 1, 6. That the glory of his grace might be praised. Why did God create a people for himself? Isaiah 43, 7 says, I created them for my glory. Why did God raise up Pharaoh and harden his heart and deliver Israel with a mighty arm? Exodus 9, 6 that his name might be declared in all the earth. Why did God spare rebellious Israel in the wilderness and bring them to the promised land? Ezekiel 20 verse 14, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Why did he not destroy Israel when they rejected him as king and demanded to be like all the nations? First Samuel eight, four through six, the Lord will not forsake his people, why? For his great name's sake. Why did God bring the Israelites back from Babylon? Because Daniel prayed, For your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Daniel 9, 17. Why did the Father send the incarnate Son to Israel? Quote, to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Romans 15, 8 through 9. Why did the Son come to die? in this very Gospel, John 12, 27 through 28, for this purpose I have come to this hour, says Jesus. Father, glorify your name. Oh friends, these things are not at odds with one another. It might seem as though God can either love me or he can love himself and seek his own glory. I beg you not to pit these truths against each other. Just as it is true that God both does not delight in the, in the death of the wicked, and he does purposefully execute his wrath on them, yet so also it is true that God loves his glory above all else, and it is inside of that love, and as a result of that love for himself, that he loves us by giving himself and his life to us in his Son by his grace. You were created to know and to rejoice in God and to display his glory. And friend, just as a side note here, I have to just add a little bit. That God saved you because of his commitment to his own glory is the anchor by which you can hold on to your faith. That promise is an unbreakable promise. As long as God exists, as long as his glory is the greatest glory of all glories, your salvation lies secure, because his promise to save you is built on his promise to uphold his glory. My life was changed when I read Jonathan Edwards, The End For Which God Created the World, and I'll just give you a short paragraph from that book. God had respect to himself, he says, as his last and highest end in this work. Because he is so worthy in himself to be so, being infinitely the greatest and best of beings, all things else with regard to worthiness, importance and excellence are perfectly as nothing in comparison of him all that is ever spoken of in Scripture as the ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. So then the next question must come, why does anyone reject Jesus? And the answer is because they are in love with their own sin. In verses 19 through 20, we see this. We reject Jesus because we are in love with darkness and sin and because we hate the light of God. Friend, no one ever forces you to sin. We might like to say things like the devil made me do it. We might like to think that others have ultimate power over us, but it's not true. Friend, you and I sin because we love sin. Friend, if you're not a believer today, you sin as a matter of course, meaning everything that you do in life is ultimately sinful. Why would I say that? Because Romans 14 and Hebrews 11 give us two bits of information. Romans 14 says that anything that is done apart from faith is sin. And Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, friend, if you are living your life without faith in Jesus Christ, everything you do as a matter of course is an act of rebellion against the glory of God. You are actively trying to steal his glory and make it your own. You are actively denying him his ultimate worth. You are assaulting him. Moment by moment, with every breath you breathe, with every word you speak, with every thought you have, you antagonize the almighty God of heaven. See, that's why it's so important to look at three 1 through 15. When Jesus confronts Nicodemus with his need for rebirth, Nicodemus is... A Pharisee. He is the godliest of all the godly. He is the moralist of all the moral. He is the one who from the outside would least need the regenerating work of Jesus Christ, and yet Jesus says to him functionally what Isaiah says to the people of Israel. All his righteous works are as filthy rags in God's sight. Nicodemus was not in love so much with particular sinful acts as he was in love with his own righteousness. And that righteousness is a noxious fume in the face of God who alone is holy and righteous. Nicodemus was just as enslaved to sin as a greedy tax collector. He was just as enslaved to sin as a prostitute or a drunkard. Everyone, until and unless they are born again, is at war with God. We hate his truth, we despise his righteousness, and we love our own. And that is what the Bible means by, you are dead in your sins and enslaved to them. Whatever excuse we might offer, they all boil down to this simple truth. Friends, we reject Jesus because we love our sin and we are not willing to give it up because we love the darkness, says John, and we hate God. And friend, rejecting Jesus only compounds our guilt and our condemnation apart from Jesus, you are not in some neutral territory. The picture of scripture is not like there are those who love Jesus, those who hate Jesus, and then a zone of those who haven't quite decided yet. They're figuring it out, they're seeking, they're searching, that doesn't exist, friend. There is no such neutral territory. To not acknowledge Christ as the most glorious of all things, to not set him as your supreme treasure, your sole Lord, the greatest end for which the world was created, is to reject him. And when you reject him, friend, you are not, you are adding up to the sin that stands against you. It is God's mercy then. That stands between you and his eternal wrath. He continues with every breath to hold back his wrath from you. You are as like a little house at the very base of an immense dam, and behind that dam is building foot by foot by foot all of your sins. And God's mercy stands there holding it back from you so that it will not come down and crush you. To reject Jesus only adds to his wrath. Romans 2, 4 says that his patience and his long-suffering mercy that you are breathing right now is a moment for you to turn back and to repent. Friend, that Jesus comes into the world to save sinners does not help them unless they flee to Jesus for refuge from the storm of God's wrath. So, next big question, who can be saved? In so dire a circumstance, if we are bound by our sins and enslaved to our sins, mounting up the wrath of God over us as though it were behind a dam ready to break loose, who can be saved? Who comes to Jesus in faith? And the answer from this whole chapter, and indeed the whole of the Bible, is those who have been born again. Those who have been born again, verses 3, 5, 6 through 8, and 14. Those who see the kingdom of God, those who enter the kingdom of God, are those who have been born by the Spirit of God, who have been changed by God's mercy. They are the ones who walk in the truth, says this passage, who come to the light, who above all love God and love his glory. Verse 21 gives us the first two expressions here that they are parallel. Those who walk in the truth are those who have given their lives to the authority of God, who trust in his word and have submitted their wills to his. And those who come to the light are the same people. You cannot imagine yourself to come to the light of Christ while rejecting the truth of Christ. Nor can you imagine yourself to be in the light of Christ or to have come to it if you just know it academically in your mind. The two must come together. Those who come to the light are those who, like the psalmist, say, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So, but then, so who comes? Those who have been born again, but who can walk in the truth? Who will come to the light? Can anyone? Will anyone? And the answer is yes. But only those who are born again by the gracious and mysterious power of God's Spirit see the one who walks in the truth is the one who confesses that he in and of himself does not and cannot so walk but he knows one who does one preacher once said i know that i am just a little sheep but my best friend is a lion The one who comes to the light comes because he confesses that without the light of God, he knows his heart is full of darkness. They come not because they love God, says John in his epistle, but because God loved them and drew them by his spirit to look on him savingly. My friends, it was some hard work, huh? What are the implications and the applications of this message? There's so much more that we could say, but let's just say this, or these. The implications and the applications of this message are that Jesus came to save all who believe. So, if you are not a believer today, I want you to know that God loves you. I want you to know that God loves you, particularly. Friend, if you're not a believer, God loves you. But there is a deeper and a greater love in and knowing and trusting in Christ Jesus. Remember the story we told at the beginning. Does the father love the elder brother? Yes. But is God's love effective on him? No. No not until and unless he comes into the feast. And how is he gonna come into the feast? He has to let go of his own righteousness. He has to confess himself needy. He has to see his father the way that his brother sees his father. Friend, if you don't, if you don't believe in Jesus, God loves you despite what you are. That's the wonderful news about John three sixteen, friend. That God, if God loved the world because of what was in the world, there would be no hope for some of us, would there? There would be no hope for any of us. There's nothing lovable in us apart from God. But God does not love the world based on what is in the world. He loves the world on the basis of what is in himself. That is the hope of John three sixteen. That is why it is so wonderful that John three sixteen is not for God so loved the world, but God loved the world in this way that he sent his son to die. God loves you despite what you are. God's love is able to change you into who you were meant to be. Your only hope is this gospel. So who is salvation for? It's for you. It's for you, friend, today. Now, if you ask in your heart, has God made provision for me in Christ? Gordon, you said that Christ came and died only for his church. Is is that me? Is, Is Christ enough for me? Yes. And if you're asking the question in your heart out of any sense and desire to come to Christ, then that means that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in your heart to bring you to Christ. No one wants to come to Christ but those that Christ is working on. There's no one who says, Christ will you let me in to whom Christ says no. Who is salvation for? You. Is Christ enough for you? Yes. And if you are a believer, friend, God wants you to know and rejoice in his love for you, but he wants you to know it and enjoy it chiefly through Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to abstract his love from the cross to sort of make it a teddy bear kind of love. God God is just a loving, nice guy. He tends to love people. No, he loves you in and through Jesus Christ. I am convinced that my heart will not ever know the full totality of the wonder of the glory that lies on the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the end for which God created the world, and it is awesome. Recognize that to truly know Jesus means coming into the light of his truth. It means submitting to the scrutiny of God's word. Friend, your life will come under the scrutiny of this whole book. It will require radical change. But God provides the spirit for that change. The Christian life is one of joyful but real obedience. So friend, if you know Jesus, and if you've come in repentance and faith, then rest and rejoice in the transforming love of God. Know that he who calls us to orient our lives by and toward his love and glory is the very one who provides you your every need. Friend, let the love of God call you home. Take that moment as it were, come to your senses and say, my father is a good father. The boy does not say, I am an utter wretch, so much as he notices, my father is good. I will go to him. Let the love of God call you home. Let the love of God spread his feast before you. Let the love of God sit you down. Because God works to effect in us by his spirit and love to bring us to a love of him and his eternal glory. His love produces in us the fruit. His love causes us to walk in his truth by the light of his word, for the joy of his glory and grace. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for letting us sit under the authority of your word. Thank you that you do not love us for who we are, but for who you are, and for your purpose for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that your salvation is an unbreakable salvation. Thank you that you will not lose even one that the Father has given into Jesus' hand. Oh Lord God, be pleased to count among that number everyone who sits in this room this day. Be pleased to break our heart by your own goodness. Be pleased to draw us by the power of your love. Be pleased to seat us at the feast of your eternal grace and satisfy us in yourself. And we ask it not on our own merits, but entirely in Jesus' name do we pray, amen.